0: Produced by PI Media. Hi, and welcome back to the Wix Engineering Podcast. My name is Ran Levy. We left our last episode with a conundrum. Hawkon Lee was trying to convince two powerful internet companies to fully equally implement his cascading stylesheets format into their browsers. Neither was keen on the idea. Then one of those companies, Microsoft, subsumed the other, Netscape, which solved the problem. But it also introduced a whole new, even more difficult problem. Microsoft now possessed, essentially, a monopoly in the internet browsing market. They controlled everything. They didn't have to listen to anyone, let alone a little developer like Håkon, preaching interoperability and cooperation.
1: So, uh, all eyes were really on on Microsoft. And unless Microsoft fixed the problems in CSS, it didn't really matter that... Opera had a much better implementation because nobody could use it. You were limited by what the dominant browser had in their code. Having nearly
0: 100% market share, Internet Explorer became, for most of the world, synonymous with Internet browsing. Microsoft had a huge, powerful monopoly. They didn't have to listen to some small group of developers calling for a language uniformity across all browsers. In fact, they could ignore everyone, build their own CSS type language, make it purposefully incompatible with other browsers, and it would only further their dominance. In fact, Microsoft was already vertically integrating just about every aspect of the internet experience.
1: Well, there was, you know, there was the DOM, there was uh, HTML, uh, JavaScript. Basically, Microsoft had their own implementation of all of these. And I, I'm not a specialist on anything outside of CSS.
0: There is no company today so thoroughly dominant as Microsoft. In the early 2000s, but the closest equivalent may be Apple. Apple deliberately designs Apple products to work with other Apple products and not other products. The devices, the apps, even their own Swift programming language. It's how we got to a world where PC is one category and Mac is another. Still, you can use Internet Explorer on a Mac if you want, and CSS works on Safari. This wasn't always a
1: given, most notably in the early 2000s. If we don't have that on the web, we don't really have a web. We don't have a web where everyone can contribute. You don't want to have a web where you know you had to speak the Microsoft dialect. I understand from Microsoft's point of view, you know, why should they add, you know, key programmers around when? They have 90% of the market, and basically you can do a lot of cool stuff if you speak the Microsoft dialect. There is little incentive for, for, for them to, to fix those bugs. So from a, from a kind of management perspective, I, I can see why they did what they did, which, which was basically to close down the IE team. But from a specifications and from a web developer point of view, it's totally, totally madness. And it keeps you, you know, keeps you lying awake at night to think about those bugs in IE. And that's not really a world we want to live in. So that's why I, you know, had to start kind of a battle against Microsoft and and against the people that I had worked with in the past
0: Hawken was about to take on the world's biggest company and their CEO, the world's richest man. The company which supported him from the very beginning and employed many of his friends and colleagues. It would be the defining fight of his career. An uphill slug. But listening to him tell it, it wasn't all bad.
1: It has some entertainment value to fight with Microsoft. I can't say I... I, you know, hated uh, all aspects of that. On February 3rd, 2005, Bill
0: Gates published an executive email. It began, quote, Every day, businesses face an ongoing challenge of making a wide variety of software from many different vendors work together it's crucial to success in streamlining business processes, getting closer to customers and partners, or making mergers and acquisitions successful. When you are connecting with partner's system, accessing data from a mainframe, connecting applications written in different programming languages, or trying to log on across multiple systems, Bringing heterogeneous technologies together while reducing costs is today a challenge that touches every part of the organization. Over the years, our industry has tried many approaches to come to grips with the heterogeneity of software. But the solution that has proven consistently effective and the one that yields the greatest success for developers today is a strong commitment to interoperability. End quote.
1: Well, you know, my life was centered around the uninteroperability in Microsoft's product.
0: Hawken was going about his daily life. Then Bill Gates published his Building Software That Is Inoperable by Design letter. It wasn't just a slap in the face, it was as if the richest, most powerful man in the world
1: was teasing him. Basically, the bugs in IE kept me awake at night. And when he's bragging about the interoperability of Microsoft product, that's, that was totally madness. Uh, uh, to me, that was so clear that he, he, either he doesn't have a clue about what's going on on the web, or he's basically just disregarding it just to, to create some marketing speech.
0: Gates wrote that, quote, Simply put, interoperability is a proven approach for dealing with the diversity and heterogeneity of the marketplace. And quote. Microsoft offers a comprehensive portfolio of interoperability software capabilities. End quote. He described the many ways his company promoted and participated in the development of interoperable technologies across the industry in collaboration with outside developers and companies. In response, Hawken devised his own letter aimed directly at Bill Gates.
1: So I, I had I knew to you know to some very exact details what was wrong in in their product, in the IE browser, so I could sit down and write that, uh, you know, a little cheeky letter perhaps, but, but, you know, I had all the facts right, I knew what I was talking about, um, and there was also an audience there.
0: So, Mr. Gates, it begins, you say you believe in interoperability. Hawkon then listed out all the ways in which Microsoft was shorting on their commitment, not just CSS, but HTML4, Web Core Fonts, and so on, and the ways they could improve. The letter ended, quote, convince us, deliver on your promise. End quote.
1: There was a lot of people in the web development community who were cheering, uh, who were seeing the problems caused by Microsoft's lack of interoperability. So I, I think I had a lot of support um, for for doing that, and, and you know the register wrote articles about it, and uh, uh, there was a a lot of you know buzz in in the community, which of course egged me on a bit too.
0: Unfortunately, no matter his support in the development community, Microsoft's profit-making interests were still stacked against him. They
1: didn't fix the bugs in IE, and I think I know why. It was a very comfortable position for them. They had established kind of a Microsoft dialect of HTML and CSS, and for them, fixing that so that they conform to the standards instead of their own dialect meant... A, they had to invest in programmers, and B, they had to risk that some of the pages that their customers were currently using, that they ended up looking differently. And that's, of course, a business cost when you change a product and and something turns out to, to not look the same. So for them, it would have been better if the world had adapted to their dialects, their versions of the standards. It was clear
0: that no letter was going to change anything. The small community of developers in the know may have supported Hawken, but the rest of the world didn't care and was probably more likely to side with Bill Gates over a lesser known adversary anyway
1: so it was clear that you know some people would read my 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 letter my my article, but most wouldn't um. But if we could make a test that would showcase, highlight the fact that IE was quite terrible uh, as a browser, that would have more impact.
0: Microsoft would have to be exposed somehow in a way that was clear enough for anyone to see. Inspiration came in the form
1: of what's called the
0: ACID-1 test.
1: The first ACID test was written by Todd Parner. He was uh, an early participant in the CSS work, and he saw some problems in early implementation of uh, forms and uh, HTML elements, basic things uh, that were part of the CSS1 specification and the test was mostly done within the working group. It wasn't widely published outside, but he was able to fix some early problems with that relatively simple test.
0: The ACID-1 test was designed to determine whether browsers were fully compatible with CSS-1. It consisted of a collection of boxes, orange, red, and black, against a white background, of different sizes and dimensions, some inside one another, each containing little text phrases like toggle and sync to me. A fully CSS1 compatible browser would render all these boxes, their colors, sizes, orientation, and text correctly. A browser with zero or incomplete compatibility would not, and its failure would be immediately obvious to any observer. We refer to it as the ACID-1 test today only because there was an ACID-2 test, co-created by Hawken Lee.
1: In order to write that test, I enlisted Ian Hickson um, of later HTML5 fame. Uh, he's an incredible uh, hacker and incredible spec writer as well. And uh, he knew the CSS specification to some detail and he also knew the specification, the, sorry, the the browser uh, implementations to some details. Um, so we worked together. We shared an, a an hotel room in, um, in Boston for a week for one of the worldwide web conferences. And we shared that room so that we could really work hard on the, on the test. I think I, I had my main contribution was that smiley face. Um, the smiley face is good. You know, it's very easy to see when, when it's right. It's obvious when something isn't. Isn't, isn't right there. Um, and, but Ian was the one who wrote the underlying code. Uh, he's really good at it. Um, and we were very pleased with the result. Um, we had some other contributors as well.
0: The ACID-2 test was a pixelated smiley face. Green eyes, a big smile, and a square nose. I guess their intention was to make it fun, but if I'm being honest, it looks kind of creepy. Like, if you fail the ACID2 test, it's going to kill you. Ian and Håkon wrote in that if a browser failed the test, the smiley face would become distorted and leave red streaks along the page.
1: I had to admit here that we added some of that red background, you know, so to make the face, the smiley face, look kind of bloody. I think we chose that color to make it look like blood. So we made it a little worse than it seemed, perhaps.
0: With this creepy smiley face, any browser could be easily, unambiguously tested for CS2 compatibility. It could be tried on any browser, but obviously, the main target was Internet Explorer.
1: I think now, uh, many years later, I think CSS would have been very different if we hadn't had that, that acid test. It was a very important part of making sure that CSS could be used for real by real developers on real web pages. A lot of people um, started asking Microsoft questions about this. One thing were, were the, the newspaper articles that were written, but also people, you know, developers who were very, you know, conscious of their trade. They wanted to do right code, do it the correct way. They started asking Microsoft questions. So when there was a Microsoft talk at a conference, you know, and they opened up for questions afterwards, somebody would raise their hand and said, you know, when are you going to do, you know, the ACID uh, 2 test? And then the next version of of, of IE came out. That was IE 7. Uh, So then we were very hopeful that they they had fixed these problems.
0: Despite the promise of Internet Explorer 7, the results of the test were not good. In
1: fact, they were really, really bad. When it was out, you know, it kind of struck uh, as a lightning. It was like, wow, is I really that bad? The pace was still bloody. Uh, The nose and the ears and the eyes were, you know, in the wrong places. To say
0: the ears and eyes were in the wrong places is an understatement. Other browsers like Opera 8.54 and Firefox 2.0 had eyes and ears in the wrong places. The IE7 Acid 2 test looked more like the flag of the Soviet Union, all red across the page with some remnants of the dismembered yellow smiley face off to the left side. A gruesome murder.
1: So they tried initially to say, um, you know, this is not something we care so much about. I I remember distinctly one Microsoft person saying, we have bigger fish to fry. That was the term he used. Bigger fish to fry
0: was really one of the nicer things Microsoft said about the ACID-2 test during that time. In July 2005, IE's platform architect referred to ACID 2 as not a proper compliance test, but a, quote, wish list of features. Their general manager referred to it as, quote, torture test and, quote, what one set of people feels very strongly about, end quote.
1: So I thought, you know, okay, this is not good news. It's from looking at the test, it's obvious that Microsoft doesn't, doesn't comply. We can all see this in the web standards community. But if Microsoft choose to disregard it, we can't really do anything about it. I mean, we can't really sue them, can we? Um, all we could do was to raise awareness in the community. And, and that's what we did.
0: Slowly, the smaller players in the industry began fixing their browsers to comply with CSS2. Six and a half months after the test was first published, Safari was the first to release a fully-compliant browser on Halloween 2005. Opera passed in June 2006, and Firefox two years after that. But the browser that really mattered remained unfixed. In one sense, Internet Explorer actually didn't matter quite as much as it once had. When Acid 2 was created, they'd controlled nearly 90% of the browser market. By 2008, Firefox had taken a good chunk out of Internet Explorer's market share, with around 30% of all Internet users favoring their browser. With major companies like Apple and soon Google competing for the same customers, the reign of Internet Explorer was soon to be over. Perhaps this softened Microsoft to the idea of cooperation.
1: I thought, you know, maybe maybe this wouldn't work at all. Um, but but then at some point, Microsoft, the pressure on Microsoft must have gotten too high internally. Somebody must have decided that, you know, guys, we're going to have to do this. This is going to be a problem for us. If we keep on ignoring these guys, they're gonna they're not going to give up. Um, so. They, they, they just decided to fix it. And when IE8 came out, it was perfect. And that was, you know, one of the true moments of, of joy in my life, was testing IE8 to see uh, how they performed with the acid test and seeing that, wow, it, it passes. Uh, they've done it.
0: March 19, 2009. Fifteen years after first proposing his new paradigm for Internet styling, four years after releasing the ACID-2 test, the battle was over. Håkon Lai had stood up to the world's biggest company in defiance of the world's most powerful man and won.
1: That was, you know, pure victory. Very good day.
0: The story of CSS isn't just about CSS or how a developer stood up to an Internet giant. It's about how the Internet should be, how we build a better future, how Hawken and the community of developers stood up to the powers that be and didn't accept an Internet that wouldn't work equally well for all. We take interoperability for granted these days. It just seems implicit to how the Internet is. But it's not. A lot of people worked hard to make it that way. And if we don't continue to promote open source projects, open and equal dialogue in the development community and interoperable software across all our digital platforms, the Internet is still very much capable of change, for the worse. Following the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, Facebook was accused of abating or at least turning a blind eye towards a proliferate fake news campaign carried out by far-right political groups and the Russian government. In September 2018, The Intercept published an internal Google memorandum outlining the company's plans to develop a China-based search engine which would censor all anti-government content. In December of 2018, in a party-line vote, the Federal Communications Commission repealed 2015 net neutrality legislation, thereby opening the door for telecommunications companies to block, throttle, and create prioritization structures according to which companies could pay more for their broadband access. In 2005, Hawkon Lee stood up to the most powerful company in the world and its CEO, the most powerful man in the world, to demand a free and equal Internet. As a handful of powerful corporations vie for the kind of Internet monopoly Microsoft possessed two decades ago, we are left wondering, who today has the courage to stand up and fight? That's it for the story of how the CSS standard came to be universally adopted by all the major internet technology companies. And now, as an epilogue of sorts, here's a short interview with Gilad Segal, a front-end developer team leader at Wix, who will describe to us how developers in Wix are pushing
2: CSS technology forward. I think of CSS as a tool in my toolkit, and... In order to be able to provide the best user experience for my users, I need to master all the tools I'm using. And I see JavaScript uh, as important as CSS. And like I want to use the latest and most modern JavaScript features, I want to use the best and most modern CSS features as well. And CSS can have impact of many aspects of any websites. And I want to give a few examples. Um, For example, accessibility, what CSS does is separate the concerns. So you have the HTML for the semantics and markup, and you have CSS for stylings. Like In the past, we might use a table, an HTML table, to create the website layout. And a screen reader interpreting the markup might think of the layout as a tabular data, which might get the user user using the uh, screen reader confused. And about performance, CSS can offload work to the GPU, it can reduce the time to the first render using the font display property, it can make buttons react faster using the touch action property, and the list goes on. Uh, So in the past, while we were designing a website, there were a few static layouts, but we had to deal a lot with browser quirks, non-standard implementations, and requiremented couldn't be properly expressed using CSS, like border radius. Like, before we had border radius, we had to use images to create rounded borders, which is kind of funny. Uh, Nowadays, the web has matured a lot. We have more standards, more cross-browser consistency and capabilities. But the features we are required to develop are richer, more complex uh, layouts. And we have to support any viewport, no matter how small it is. So it's more dynamic than what it used to be. Another point is that not so long ago, we had to support all the browsers that didn't update automatically. And as a result, they weren't aligned with the modern CSS spec. Uh, so we could use only a small common subset of all the available CSS features. And this is the mindset of many developers still today. But as a matter of fact, we know that this is not um, what happens today, because browsers do update automatically and are aligned with the spec, so we can use modern CSS. And this brings me to my challenges. First of all, just keeping up with the spec, which updates rapidly, is quite a task. And also to be a CSS advocate, which means I need to challenge all the colleagues around me to learn and implement their tasks using modern CSS. Uh, Generally, when we use something new, we want to gain something like more performant code, simpler code, better user experience. So I'll split my my answer into two parts. First of all, we have the optimal environments which we have dropped uh, support for legacy browsers completely. In those environments, we can use new uh, CSS features to be more effective without worrying about uh, backward compatibility. Uh, In those environments, we can use sticky positioning and logical properties. Implementing those kind of features without uh, CSS would require a lot of JavaScript. Then we have the more demanding environments, like our user websites. Uh, where we want to support uh, legacy browsers to give better user support. There, we need to usually pick between one of two approaches, either graceful degradation or progressive enhancement. And I want to explain what those terms mean. So graceful degradation means that we build our code for modern browsers and provide uh, a lesser but functional uh, experience for users with old browsers. And progressive enhancement means we provide a very basic user experience, and make it better if the user is using a modern browser. An example of graceful degradation is a page that we built using the new grid layout for modern browsers. And we fell back to an older and less capable version of the grid, for specifically for IE11. And regarding progressive enhancement, I think we've reached a turning point because we are discussing it in our day-to-day features. Uh, and implementing it is easier than what it was to be using the Add Supports rule. This rule allows us to conditionally apply a set of CSS uh, declarations based on browser support. And the good news are that old browsers doesn't recognize this rule at all and won't uh, apply any declarations contained within it. Uh, Many people don't know that the representatives of of the browsers are in the uh, standard committees and they are helping to create the standards. And, you know, like, usually people get pissed when uh, some browsers d- does not support this new standard or that standard, but but actually the browsers are creating the standards for themselves, and they partake in the committees, which is a nice something to think about. And regarding IE, where before, where before CSS, I think, you know, Even 10 years ago, when I was developing stuff for IE6, I remember it it was very difficult because you had to write specific code for Firefox, specific code for IE6, specific code for IE7. So it was very repetitive and very tricky. You had to know a lot of stuff, very browser-specific stuff.
0: That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. The Wix Engineering Podcast is produced by PI Media, written by Nate Nelson, edited by Guy B. Noon, and narrated by me, Ran Levy. See you next episode. Bye-bye. For more engineering insights, follow Wix Engineering's blog, YouTube, Twitter, and subscribe to their newsletter.